Now, this is God's word. We'll read and then we'll pray. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round about him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word, and let us once more pray. Father in heaven, we need your help. You must open these things to us for us to understand them. And then, Lord, having understood them, would you give us what's necessary to obey them? Lord, we'll ask you to help us be a student. For we know you are the master teacher. Make full use of this, our time together. But for your glory, we ask all this in your precious and strong name. Amen. Well, as has been mentioned, this is the most famous conversion story in all history. Conversion meaning going from not saved to saved. Dead in your trespasses and sins to alive, adopted as a child of God. And uh, as far as conversion story go, some of us refer to those as our testimony. Uh, it's hard to top this one. Not that this is any more exciting or salvific or uh, a punched ticket to heaven, to put it in very basic terms, as anyone else. It's all the same in that regard. But it's famous because this was the chief of sinners, no less, by Paul's own testimony. 
This was the man who is tearing the church up, hauling off its believers, sentencing them, and then authorizing their executions. Um, as far as the transaction goes, again, this is the chief of sinners, but it's actually Jesus Christ himself who carries the good news. And in many cases, it's uh, his witnesses. He stood on the mountain when he ascended and said, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. You go tell them what I said. In this case, Jesus goes and tells Paul what he had said. So this is really in, in, in its most basic form. It, it's an arrest on the side of the road to Damascus. Uh, law enforcement would call this a 1095, I believe, subject in custody. And he's in the Lord's service from then on out. He will suffer great things. Uh, his life will be given, uh, tradition tells us, by Emperor Nero. But no one has been more instrumental for the cause of Christ than this man, who will later be called Paul. Uh, we're introduced to the man at the end of chapter 7 at Stephen's execution when he was stoned. It was Saul of Tarsus who was holding the coats, which is a way of saying he's the one that organized, prosecuted, and then signed the death warrant, whatever you want to call it. And then the last time we saw him was at the beginning of chapter 8. Uh, I'll read that just to give us a running start to where we began a moment ago. But at the beginning of chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Skip down a bit. And Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we pick up the narrative regarding Saul of Tarsus with what we read this morning. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So a lot's gone on, but he's right where we left him. Still breathing threats. Went to the high priest, asked for letters. These are basically extradition papers to go find them and bring them back to Jerusalem and do the same that was done with Stephen. Um, so that if any be found belonging to the way, which was description of the early church it wasn't used for long this is the only place that we see that um, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem it's a very famous passage which usually I always give the disclaimer they're tough I think they're tougher than any uh, the Easter story the Christmas story among the toughest of them all what do you say about passages we all know very well or most of us know very well and we may have known them very well since we were kids sometimes I think the easiest thing to do is just make sure you you see it in its context we've been studying since chapter 1 we're in chapter 9 Luke's telling the story these real events as they took place he's trying to tell us something he's writing under inspiration so let's see if we can't see what Luke is emphasizing and just try to keep it simple. What's taking place and what does it mean as far as we are concerned? What does it mean as far as how people are saved? What does it mean as far as how God can save the most unlikely of candidates for grace? So we'll try to keep it that simple. Uh, four points this morning. If you want to write these down, I'd, I'd encourage you to do so, but We'll, we'll, we'll work on the first one right here. 
And all of these have to do with this conversion that we're looking at. Paul being wondrously saved. Number one, this is the conversion of one who is decidedly opposed to the gospel. That much is clear. And it seems uh, Luke has been going to pains from the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, and then at the beginning of chapter 9 to say this is the man who's been trying his best to destroy the church. This is the man who uh, we really have no record of his involvement with Jesus. We have quite a bit of involvement with persecuting the church he left behind. So, the conversion of one who is decidedly opposed to the gospel. Uh, just to add one more reference, this is later in Acts, in verse or chapter 26, Paul recounting his own testimony. He'll do this twice in Acts. Here's what he said about himself. I myself was convinced that I ought to do as many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This is his own testimony. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, which is what he's doing now. He's on his way to Damascus, and he's got his official papers for official business. I think that this is famous because this has to be the absolute last person anyone would ever think would repent and believe the name of Jesus. I mean, you've, you've got to admit, this, this is a long shot, right? Uh, no one saw this coming. I, I don't know that anyone was praying for the man other than, Lord, would you kill him before he kills us? <laughs> Might be one way. But not just because this is the guy who seems to be the church's greatest enemy. But it's equally a long shot because of all this man stood to lose if he were to become saved. Think about it. If he's Pharisee number one, and the Pharisees seem to be the target of all Christ's preaching as what's wrong with religion, then this guy would have to be as wrong as any of them ever get, right? Pharisees' understanding of the law is keep them all. You'll have your best shot at heaven. It's a works-based righteousness. And the more they keep the law, the more righteous and special they feel. And in fact, they fine-tune and tighten up and add to these traditions burdens way too heavy to carry for everyone else. You must be righteous like we are righteous. It's our only hope for heaven. And then comes along this Jewish carpenter who basically says, no, I'm going to die in your place, take your punishment, and I'll offer you my righteousness. So if you get to heaven, it'll be on my righteousness, my blood, and nothing that you add. That's absolute, total destruction to the whole system. I mean, this guy doesn't live past that. It's not like he just decided, you know, I've driven a Ford all my life. I think I'm going to buy a Chevy. It's not it at all. 
this man has the most to lose of anybody we've read in Scripture yet, should he decide that Jesus actually is who he said he was. Not only that, but uh, I mean, if you're just trying to think your way through examples of what this would be like, just imagine, uh, I don't know, in, in, in one of his famous debates, Richard Dawkins. Let's say uh, it's a rematch of him and one of my favorites with uh, John Lennox. And John Lennox, a mathematician who's a, a wondrous apologist, begins to defend the truth of these scriptures. And Richard Dawkins just says, well, I think I've heard all I need to hear. I believe it. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I said, no, he's not going to do that. He's Richard Dawkins. He's got all those books, right? He's beyond that type of grace, which would be blasphemy. There's no one beyond God's grace. But when you put it like that, you think there's no way. What if, okay, current event, uh, Vladimir Putin to speak to the nations, confess Christ and withdraw from Ukraine. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, the one ravaging the church. Saul of Tarsus, who studied under Gamaliel, falls off his horse on the way to Damascus and then begins preaching the man whom he persecuted. That's what we're reading about this morning. It couldn't be any more dramatic. It couldn't be any more famous. What do we need to learn here? What's Luke trying to tell us? God's mercy is not limited to certain conditions. You might think, okay, if, uh, I don't know if you've noticed all this on TV here lately. It's kind of a since COVID thing, but doesn't it look like just about every other commercial while you're trying to watch sports has to do with uh, some online gambling site? I've heard that, you know, when we lost some of the sports channels, it's because a big company bought it and they're trying to make it on your TV where you can place your bets, right? Let's say we're placing bets on who's the type of person who will get saved given enough time. Let's say we've got a draft going and we've got a couple of first rounders who grew up in church. Do we want to put some money on that? Let's say that uh, they went to Christian school. Maybe a little more. Let's say that they went to Awana, memorized Bible verses. Let's say they wore their sparky vest to school. <laughs> you know? I'm joking here, but wouldn't you say, all these are good signs. This is the perfect candidate for God's grace. No more perfect than Saul of Tarsus. We can't limit God's grace. He chooses. He decides. It's a problem that we have. But God's mercy isn't limited. The most unlikely people can and will be saved. And uh, anybody that knew my dad when my dad was a boy would have bet against him. The house, the farm. He's saved. Spends 30 years preaching the gospel in church. It's the Lord's business, and he's the one that we praise. Number two, this conversion was not only one having to do with a decidedly uh, opposed to the gospel ravager of the church, 
But this conversion was sudden and unexpected. Now, there's no question as to whether or not it's sudden. I'll have to explain what I mean by the word unexpected. But look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone about, around, about him, or around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, his name twice, why are you persecuting me? So I, I, I don't know if I mentioned yet, Saul's trip was about 150 miles uh, to the north or so. About 150 miles. Uh, it's about here to the beach. Uh, whether you're going to... Um, I don't know, it's probably about two and a half, three hours whether you go uh, Moorhead City down to Oak Island, give or take. It's probably about 150 miles, give or take, all the way down. How long should that take you? Maybe three hours, if you stop. Any of you made it in less than two and a half? You want to raise your hand? <laughs> we got one. I've done it myself. The children ask, how long? Two more hours, no matter if it's been two minutes or two hours. You just say two more hours. We're not stopping. This should have taken Saul about a week, six days maybe. Uh, a lot of the time they would walk alongside the animals. Sometimes they'd ride the animals. They'd have to stop and water the animals. They'd have to stop and sleep. But if you notice, it says that... Uh, as he approached Damascus. So he's, he's right there at the point where you stop worrying about the trip, right? I mean, you're within the city limits. This is from going to Oak Island. Uh, I've already seen the sign for Southport. You're all 40. You don't worry about the traffic. Um, you're pretty much clear sailing. It's at the clear sailing stage, out of the blue, that this light flashes and knocks the man clean off whatever he was riding or if he was walking. Again, we're not told, no more than we're told that Mary rode a donkey. Though all the pictures I remember in junior church had Saul on a horse. I don't know if he's on a horse or not. The story tells us, though, out of nowhere, he's absolutely stunned. Let's see what happens. And though there are indications, and this is where I'm going to, Try to explain the word unexpected, sudden and unexpected. There seems to be in some of these accounts and in his testimony and other places in Scripture that the Lord was working in the life of Saul prior to this Damascus Road conversion. But I don't think that Saul saw it that way. Now, if, if you're looking at one of the other uh, testimonies, there's included the part where Jesus says, Why do you kick against the goads? Maybe familiar with that. Kick against the pricks. Uh, we learned in Judges that an ox goad was a long uh, spear-like thing with a point on the end of it so you could sit in your, your, your cart or your plow and poke the ox and make him go forward. Sometimes they want to act like an ox and just stand still, They're stubborn. And a lot of the carts had those things made on the front end of them as well. So if the ox wants to back up, his heels are backing up into these pointy goads or pricks. Sounds like Jesus is saying, you're working against yourself. You have been working against yourself. Maybe he would think, well, maybe that's why it feels so difficult. 
There are other places uh, where it seems as if perhaps the death of Stephen may have been instrumental in him sorting things out. But it's also equally as interesting that in any place that Paul ever speaks of his own experience, he doesn't speak of the Lord having worked on him or softened him up. It's as abrupt, it's as unexpected, it's as sudden as a bright light and finding yourself on the ground as far as the way Paul tells us the story. All that to say, the Lord does this different ways. There's C.S. Lewis who describes himself as the most... A reluctant convert who thought and thought and thought his way through these things until he could do none other than make sense of the gospel as truth. So, again, we don't limit ourselves to the way this happens. But it also tells us something I think that's fantastic. We should keep praying for people, especially the ones who demonstrate absolute zero involvement of God at the moment. Because he doesn't have to show any signs that he's working on them. No one would have said, you know, I think God's got Paul right where he wants him. No, I think they would say the devil's got Paul, Saul. We're going to use that word over and over either way, all through the book. But you tell me. Do we need to see evidence of God's working in people? To ramp up our efforts in prayer or to be willing to witness? Mamas, you keep praying for that boy or your daughter who may be showing absolutely no sign of God's involvement, absolutely no interest in him, the Bible, your church, any of it. You keep praying. God doesn't need any precursors. He can reveal himself to them the moment he chooses. And then from that moment on, look backward and see all the ways in which he had been working all along, using even sinfulness as a means to changing their mind. That God could even use those things. By the time we get to the end of this, we might look at it a way we've never looked at it before. All right. Number three, we should stop the practice of deciding who we think is savable and then praying accordingly. You pray for that mean neighbor. Pray for all of them. Number three, this conversion was the work of sovereign grace. All conversions are. They all involve a sovereign act of God. This one is obvious as it can be. None of our conversions look like this. Mine didn't include my name being said twice. Mine didn't include falling out of a car with a bright light on the way to the beach. Um, I doubt yours did even remotely resemble this. But our conversions, each of ours, was no less a sovereign act on the part of God. The question is, how do we know that God was at work in this conversion? Well... First of all, you've got that blinding light, right? How do you account for that? Knock Saul to the ground so blinding he can't see for three days. And then it kind of messes with the conspiracy theorists when we learn that God gave him his sight back after three days. So God is obviously sovereignly involved. Uh, Second of all, 
The voice from heaven speaks to Saul personally. And he uses his name twice. I don't know if any of you have ever done a special study in this. Sometimes you see one in Sunday school class or something. But there are about 15 times in Scripture where we see someone's name repeated that way. Uh, R.C. Sproul calls these uh, the double knocks of Christ, like knocking twice. Uh, In each case, it seems to be a a dramatic story. Uh, You've got Abraham to begin with at Mount Moriah. He's about to take his son's life according to what he'd been told of God to do. That didn't happen. He saved his life. Moses at the burning bush. Uh, Samuel under his teacher Eli. You remember that? That's Sunday school territory. Uh, Mentions his name twice. Runs to Eli. Did you call me? No. To hear it again, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Uh, when Elisha was taken, uh, or Elijah was taken away, Elisha said this. When Jesus spoke to Martha, 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 you remember that? Uh, when Jesus spoke to Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not. The last one, if you're not counting this one, was when he was on the cross calling out to his father. My God, my God. And then if you count this one, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But in each case, all indicate an intensely personal form of address. You ever thought of it that way? Now, you might not have heard your name twice. But if you are God's child, then you know it was an intimate, meaningful, personal encounter with God or it's not worth anything at all it's the same now there's a couple of things that are not mentioned here which I think speak toward God's sovereign grace at work in the situation does this voice ask for Saul's free decision to believe in Jesus does any of this sound like an invitation that you may have been used to in all your days, and all your services you've sat through. Paul, this is your last warning. I'm giving you the option to decide to trust and serve me. Not even close, was it? I mean, what did he say? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. You get up, go into that town, I'll tell you what to do later. The voice of Christ could not be more authoritative in his life. And then there's more. He, he's, a, he's got plans for him. In the future, he's going to tell Ananias. But this is totally the work of sovereign grace. There's, not, there's no Paul in this story yet. There's no Saul in this story. Not yet. He has apprehended Saul of Tarsus, and there is no question that he is now completely his for his service. And so are you and I, if we've been saved by grace. And then third, and this just adds, uh, verse 15 and 16, uh, Ananias is afraid to go lay hands on Saul. Uh, Do you you understand why? Would you agree you'd probably be like Ananias? Um, Just want to make sure we're talking about the same guy. Um, In fact, last I heard, he has official papers and he's headed for Damascus. So we're, we're hiding 
We're, we're getting our, our ducks in a row and ready to leave town. No. And here's why. If you look at it there, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings, the children of Israel. How would you like to be called a chosen instrument of the Lord's? I like to title these messages just by some sentence or phrase. That's the one I like the best. A chosen instrument of mine. He's mine. I chose him. I'm going to use him. So you're going to be all right, Ananias. Go lay your hands on him. Give him his sight. We've got work to do. Jesus chose Saul long before Saul chose Jesus. That's the point. That's the point with the rest of us. Now, it might not feel like that. It might feel like we have been wrestling with this idea and we've arrived at intellectual assent. I've made my choice to follow Jesus. No turning back. Really, that's a work of grace. Because up to that point, you're like Saul was. A dead man. With your heart bent in the opposite direction. It also says here that he must suffer, not might suffer. He has plans. Paul would later say that he was chosen before he was born. And technically, in some other things that he says, you might want to just push that as far back as the foundation of the world. Paul was chosen as this instrument to carry out his name. I think all of this is where we get some of that thorny theology that causes us problems, might make us itch from time to time. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make it quite clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I was headed away against God's will. God stopped him on the road, spun him around. And if he hasn't done the same for us, not the road and the light part, but stopped us in our tracks and spun us around, then maybe we're not as this man is. Here's the technicalities of it. If you were to ask Saul who Jesus was prior to the point where the light broke through and knocked him down, he might answer in a number of ways, but basically it's this. To Saul, before conversion, Jesus was a dead man who died a disgraceful death for the crime of blasphemy. And he'd made sure that at least Stephen is dead too. A humiliating, pitiful death for what amounts to blasphemy. He's got letters in his hands to go find anyone else, bring them back and make sure they're dead men too. Now, Paul would describe himself later before this light as also being dead, a dead man. But this dead man on the side of the road hears the voice of a man who's not dead at all. It's Jesus Christ who's very much alive and well. And at that point, precisely, so does Paul become a living soul. And in complete, unrestricted, Access to the Father having his sins paid for by the man he is actively, to that point, persecuting.
I think this is where Paul gets all those uh, wonderful transitions in his verses. The but gods, right? Um, you just list them through in your name. But speaking uh, in Titus about the way we once were. But when the loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Through a washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. How you can go um, from dead to alive only happens because of but God. There's no other way. If we listen to Paul's own testimony of himself, this is written years later. This is the fourth point, and uh, this is what I want us to leave with. 1 Timothy 1, writing to a young pastor. These are called the pastoral epistles. Just listen to this man. This is Paul the Apostle. He was Saul of Tarsus. Verse 12, 1 Timothy 1. I thank him, that's Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. What? He saw who Saul could be, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Boy, there's a lot tucked in there, isn't it? That God would look on our wickedness as ignorance, give us mercy, even to the tune of murder. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief of sinners, your translation may say. But I received mercy for this reason. This is the good part, because he's going to tell you why he was knocked to the ground on the road to Damascus. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Hang on to that for a second. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Is he talking about us? I think he's talking about us. I would like to think that I am counted and numbered among those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And to strengthen my understanding of the gospel, Jesus Christ put up with the likes of Saul of Tarsus to a point and then saved and changed him. That's what, that's what it says. He wraps up to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But God has us in view when he saved the chief of sinners. Sounds like. Do you believe that? That's what it says. For the same reason we don't <laughs> pray for those people that we don't think our candidates for grace, oh, they're a long shot. Don't pray for them. I think whatever causes us in our brains to come to that conclusion, I think it also has us come to the conclusion that Jesus 
is not as long-suffering as he really is. I mean, aren't they connected? If, if you're not going to waste your prayer on that mean person because you don't think that they're going to be saved, then it's basically saying uh, Christ's long-suffering doesn't reach that far. Right? What did he say? But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. If there was ever a case for testing the patience of the white-hot, holy righteousness of God, wouldn't it be Saul of Tarsus? I mean, think back to uh, middle school or something when you're kids. There's the one kid in class who's just going to tear it up every day if he can get by with it, right? And no one puts him in the yearbook as the one most likely to succeed. You look at him as the one most likely to wind up in jail, right? Which would have been my father. But then he winds up the preacher. Why? Because as his son, I used to listen to people talk about him and his preaching from the busted, broken up life that he came from. Where his parents split and they were all divided up when he was eight. Lived through hell. And as an adult was still trying to figure out how to maneuver life knowing that when you were a kid nobody wanted you. What is that good for? To show the rest of us the loving, kindness, patience of the one who died for us. Him included. Paul the Apostle. When he was Saul of Tarsus. Sometimes we just don't look at Jesus the way he is until he does something like that. And proves to us all no one is outside his reach. Jesus had chosen Paul for himself before he was born and then put up with his persecution. Why? So we could say it's never too late. So we could forget saying it'll never happen. So we don't ever say God won't let that go. So we won't stop praying for our kids. So we'll still come to church or teach a Sunday school class if there's only two kids in there. So you'll still pray before you eat your food that you're thankful you have because God's loving and kind. It doesn't just start with giving us food. It starts with saving our souls. That's perfect patience. We don't know anything like that. We talk about people getting on our last nerve. You know, the, the only one we've got left or whatever. Even with someone like C.S. Lewis, and there's a, there's a good movie these days, thinking about seeing if we can't show, which talks about his being surprised by joy, looking at this God who looks as if He's the righteous judge, and I'm the a worm of a sinner. But when the transaction takes place, the surprise is joy. It's not suffering. That he would love me enough to give himself. Folks, this is just the beginning of the story of Paul. We're done for today, but there is so much more to come. If there's anything to say before we conclude, no one's too far gone. Because there's nothing more precious than the long-suffering of our Lord. 
who was showing off that day on the road to Damascus. You guys think you know me. You don't know me. And I'm not talking about Saul. I'm talking about the, the church. So he forever is our example. And let's thank the Lord for it. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for demonstrating your perfect patience and allowing acts of atrocity they would be. Allowing someone to murder one of your own, a faithful teacher, Stephen. Lord, would you prepare us for the remainder of the book as we try to wrestle why you let bad things happen, it appears, for your glory. It's just because we don't see clearly yet. But Lord, your fingerprints are everywhere. We thank you that they're all over us that call you by name. Or thank you for saving us, for redeeming us when we were dead and we couldn't respond. Thank you for choosing us before we chose you. Lord, give us what we need to fervently pray for others who've not yet seen the light. Though you do that differently in so many ways. Lord, give us what it takes to pray, pray, pray. Thank you for this service, for each other, for our time together as we sing. Lord, would you wrap this up with a bow? We ask all this in your name. Amen.